Let's pause uh, and go to the Lord once more in prayer before we come to his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. And we trust that as we uh, look to it in faith, that your spirit will attend to the preaching and the consideration of your word, and you will accomplish um, today the purposes that you have set for all of eternity for your word to accomplish in our lives. That's our hope, our expectation, and our great need. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever found yourself uh, so engrossed in a, a good television series that uh, at times you find yourself, you know, sitting on the couch uh, watching the show and you're like halfway through an episode and, and you kind of find yourself on the edge of your seat and, and super tense because you kind of care uh, what happens to these characters who, who aren't actually real, they're all fictional, but you find that you're really engaged and you're drawn into what's happening. And good shows or good movies, uh, good books, they all do this really well. Every single good story has a compelling narrative that, that draws us in and keeps us engaged and, and we can't look away. Well, over the last uh, four or five weeks, the Gospel of John has, has kind of felt like that to me. I feel like I'm just drawn in to what, what Jesus is doing as we move through these chapters and see story after story of men and women Uh, like me, like you, who encounter this extraordinary God-man, Jesus. And so let's just recap the season so far, right? We've seen a few episodes. Jesus has interacted with a number of different people uh, in these first four chapters. First, we saw Jesus with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was, you know, the, the crunchy guy out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey and a fiery preacher preparing the way for the Messiah, who indeed discovers that Jesus' cousin is actually the Messiah when he baptizes him. And then we saw Jesus interact with his disciples, these young guys that Jesus is pulling along in his wake as they learn about who, who he is and, and what he has come to do. And then we saw Jesus perform his first sign or miracle when he turns water into wine at a wedding. These servants are told to fill up these massive jars of water and it miraculously turns into wine and they realize that there's something different about this Jesus. And then we moved to the, the temple in Jerusalem where all of these guys were, were, were uh, selling sacrifices and profiting off of the worshipers of God. And Jesus, he overturns their money-changing tables and he drives them all out of the temple with a whip that he fashions. And then over the last two weeks, we've, we've eavesdropped on two conversations uh, one being between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was this, this Jewish Pharisee who came to Jesus by night uh, to have a private conversation saying, hey, we know that there's something different about you. And then last week, we met a Samaritan woman, a woman who, who went to uh, the well uh, at noon to gather water. And she went at noon so she wouldn't have to run into anybody so full of shame as she had become. And and, and, and it's there that she encounters Jesus. And their conversation reveals that he is the Messiah and he is the one who can take away shame and the one who can provide living water that truly satisfies. And so that's where we've been so far. And with many of these interactions, we see these people, we see their, their, their interaction, we, we see the, the one episode where they make an appearance and then they're not going to reoccur uh, again in the story. They're, 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 you know, we're not going to encounter these people again in the Gospel of John. And I think this is because the entire Gospel is not about these people. 
It's not about the Samaritan woman. It's not about Nicodemus. It's not about the people at the temple. It's ultimately about Jesus. He is the main character. He is the hero of the story. He is the whole reason why John wrote the gospel. Nevertheless, every single one of these interactions is important because it reveals something about the person and work of Jesus. Each one reveals something of his character and his mission. And this is what we're going to continue to see again and again and again as we continue to walk through uh, these chapters. And this morning we're going to be uh, in, in John 4 and 5. And we're going to see Jesus again continue to just do what he's been doing. He's going to encounter two more individuals, and on the surface, these two individuals could not be more different. He's going to interact with a royal ruler from Capernaum, and he's going to interact with this man in Jerusalem who's been disabled for 38 years. And while these two men couldn't be more different on the surface, they're both, they're both dealing with, with, a, with a deep pain and, and, and brokenness. They're both looking for more than the life that they have now. Their lives are not what they had expected or hoped for. And, and, and so we're going to pick up where we left off last week at the end of, of John 4, starting in verse uh, 43. It says this, After the two days he, that is Jesus, departed for Galilee. So Jesus says, just concluded a wonderful two days with a, with a group of Samaritans who've, who've turned from the darkness of sin and embraced the light of, of, of the world. They've, they've repented of their sins and they've placed their faith in Jesus. And now Jesus leaves them and he's heading back to his own people, the Jews. And he's fully aware what, uh, what awaits him. You see, unlike the Samaritans who have believed in him, he's heading back to a people who will ultimately reject him. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Okay, so Jesus is now moving back into Galilee, the, the region where he was from and the place where he began his public ministry. And in chapter 2, we saw that Jesus did a lot of these signs and these miracles during one of the Passover feasts in, in Jerusalem. And so here we are told why the Galileans are excited about him being back. It says, The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so for them, the miracle worker was back. Oh, this, is, this, is the, this is the Jesus who does all these really cool things. That, that's the, the type of crowd that, God was uh, that Jesus was walking back into. They, they wanted the great show, but they didn't necessarily want Jesus himself. They're excited for the miracles, but they're not excited for Jesus. They don't receive him as the Messiah. They just welcome him because he was the one who they saw do all this cool stuff in Jerusalem. In fact, it's what John tells us earlier on in the gospel when he says, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. And so it's with this context in mind that we come then to verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So we've got this crowd of people that are welcoming Jesus back, and then the story focuses in on one man, and it's this ruler from Capernaum. Uh, no, John doesn't 
tell us a lot about him, doesn't tell us the name of this official who made this journey from Capernaum to the Canaan to seek out Jesus. We're only told he's some kind of official, which in all likelihood meant that he was a royal official in King Herod's service. Nevertheless, this man, upon hearing that Jesus is, is, is there in Cana, he makes this 15 or 16-mile trek from Capernaum because he's heard that this guy Jesus can do miracles. Maybe he'll do a miracle for my son. Now, it's worth taking a moment just to imagine the scene so we can begin to grasp the desperate human need and the dramatic nature of the sign that is to come. We have this person of high standing, an officer, likely as they say, in the royal service of, the, of King Herod, and, and he may have come with fanfare, he may have money, he may have, have, have power, but he's also got a sick child. What's more, his, his child is not just sick, he is close to death. And those of us who had, you know, seriously sick kids or, you know, sons or daughters or, or, or perhaps have even buried a child will know the almost unbearable pain and desperation of this, this father. Though powerful, he is also powerless. He fears his beloved son is about to die. And, he, and, he, and he's probably lost all hope. And so in haste, he makes the journey to Jesus. I mean, all the doctors have failed him. Will Jesus fail him? And he approaches Jesus and he says to him, will you come down with me? Will you come back to where I live and will you heal my boy? And Jesus' response is interesting. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But if you're reading your Bible uh, there, you'll notice that the you has a, a footnote. And the footnote points on the bo- bottom where it says that you there is, is plural. So Jesus pretty much says y'all, right? Like, hey, y'all, you won't believe if you don't see signs and wonders. In other words, he takes this personal interaction and he speaks publicly to everybody, to the crowd that has gathered around. And he's saying, you're fundamentally missing the point. You're out here and you're more interested in the fireworks than the person setting them off. He says, you're confused about who I am, what I'm doing, and what I'm about. And initially, I read this and kind of thought there was maybe like this tone of hostility. You know, Jesus is throwing down the hammer. He's, he's so fed up with these people who are just coming to him and they want to see a sign, but they, but they don't know what it's pointing to. But, you know, the more I think about it, I don't think that's it. I think that Jesus is sincerely asking this man and all those who are around him to to look beyond the reliance on these miraculous signs. And he's inviting them to the one who the signs point to. He's inviting them to himself. And so for this man who's come to Jesus, I mean, rumors must have been circulating all around, right? Like, this this Jesus of Nazareth, the... He, the one that, who, who turns water into wine just a few weeks earlier, and, and now he, he, you know, he goes down to Jerusalem and he performs many signs and, and miracles, and now he's back in Galilee. Possibly he could help. And, and so he's driven by desperation and the well-being of his son, and he comes to him and says, Jesus, man, and, and Jesus says to him, you, guys, you just don't get it. You're, you're, you're just sign seekers. You want the healing, but not the one with the power to heal. And yet what we see in this man is he's not deterred by Jesus' words. No, he leans in all the more. He seeks all the more for Jesus to come. He pleads again. He says, Jesus, my son is dying. Can you you come and can you heal him? And what does Jesus say? 
Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. And I don't know if in that moment that Jesus is testing this guy, but if this is me, if I'm standing there and I made the trek and I leveraged my position and my title, my status to gain a hearing with this man and all I get is go, your son will live, I'm going to want something more. I mean, give me a sign. Of course, I, I, I'm seeking the fireworks. Show me what you did in Jerusalem. I'm going I'm to want Jesus to say, absolutely, where do you live? Let's go. Let's, let, let, let's hurry. Your son is dying. I'll make sure he's okay. But Jesus just says five words to him. Go, your son will live. And unlike me, it says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And that short line tells us so much about this man. What it tells us is that he is not like all the Galileans. He's, he's, he, he's not like you all. He, he left without seeing the miracle. We do find that the miracle does happen, but it wasn't in front of this man. He simply trusted the word of Jesus. And he walked home. You know, the text doesn't say this, but I like to think that the man walked those 15, 16 miles back with, with a peace that he hadn't had in weeks. I don't know how, but my son will live. I believe that. He takes Jesus at his word. That's faith. And then look at how this story ends. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. I love that text. He believed in all his household. You see, his belief didn't stay where it was the, the day before. The day before, he trusted what Jesus said. Now he trusted in who Jesus was. His faith, faith was growing because he was beginning to get a bigger sense of who Jesus was. He was a, he was a fledgling a disciple, to be sure, and, 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 and a one about whom we know precious little. But, but what John does tell us is that this official and his whole household, slaves as well as family, were brought to follow Jesus. All because of a sick son, a desperate father, and a compassionate Jesus. And I think about this man hearing this news and running inside and seeing his boy sitting on the, the bed feeling better. And I just picture him, him saying, hey, hey, let's talk. Let's talk. You've got to hear about this Jesus. Because that's what, that's what happens, isn't it? it when, when people believe, when they hear the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them, that cup can't help but just overflow. They share what has happened to them. I mean, that's exactly what happened with the Samaritan woman. She runs back into the town and says, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Come and see. And while it's a miracle that the boy is healed from his physical illness, much, much more of a miracle is that this entire family came to faith in Jesus. And you know, this morning, maybe you're, 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 you're sitting here this morning, and, and you know what? The fact is, you're just in a time of life where you're sitting in, a, in, in I don't know, despair that is so deep and that's so wide, and, 
and you see no way forward. And, and, and all you can resonate with in, in this story is the despair that drove this man to Jesus. And, and, and you think, well, how can the healing here not be the priority? Like, like do you know how long this, this illness has plagued me? Do you know how long my family has battled with, with, with this cancer? Do you know how the, the destruction that this sin, uh, do you know how much it's reaped in my life? How can healing not be the priority? How can you stand there and just say that belief in Jesus and, and just taking him at his word is the priority? And indeed, that's the very question that might have been asked by the next individual that Jesus encounters after he once again leaves Galilee and then heads back um, up to Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem was the, the focal point of all the feasts and festivals for the Jews. And so once more, Jesus, along with thousands of other devout Jews, they, start, they head up to the city and they start pouring into the city. And we, we read John 5, verse 2. Now there... There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which, was, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So if you're sitting in despair at all this morning, maybe you'll relate to this next guy better. Verse 5, one, day there was, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew he had already been there a long time, and he said to him, do you want to be healed? And so Jesus is coming back into Jerusalem, and as he enters this city, there's this, this pool. And, and, and now this, is, this pool is just north of the temple in the city, and there's a legend about this particular pool that if you, know, you were sick or disabled or anything like that, there would be... The, an angel would come down and would stir the water. And if you were the first person in the pool after the water was stirred, you would be healed miraculously. That was the kind of urban legend. That was the, the, the belief and the myth um, that, was, uh, that was around. And again, let's just take a moment to, to picture the scene. You, you, you have probably hundreds of sick people, people who have never been able to walk, people who have never been able to see, people who have never been able to hear, and they're all gathered around this pool. And every single one of them wants the same thing. They all want to get into the pool first. And we find that Jesus is there, and he's walking in amongst all of these multitude of people whose lives are are so broken. And, and it tells us that he goes to one particular man, and this man has been disabled for 38 years. And by any reckoning, that's an extremely, extraordinarily long period in which to suffer. And this is the interaction. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And so Jesus finds this man, and he asks him kind of what appears to be a strange question. I mean, why else would an invalid be there unless he wanted to get healed? Why would anyone go to a hospital and, and find someone who's seriously sick and has, has been for a long time and ask them whether they want to get better? I mean, it's a bit obvious. I mean, duh, like everybody, you know, he, obviously he wants to get better. I mean, that's why he's by the pool. But interestingly, the man's response, he's not like, absolutely, oh man, thank you. That's what I've been waiting for. No, he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He's got some doubt. He, he tells Jesus, this stranger that he doesn't even know, he tells him where he thinks the healing will be found. 
Look, he says, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. You see, to this man, healing men, get in the pool first. That's all he thought about. I have to get in the pool first. And every time I try, someone steps over me and they get there first. This is what will heal me. Nothing else has worked. And this guy, he's so caught up with seeking the pool that he misses the one who's seeking him. He misses Jesus. And you know, I, as, I, as I see this man's response, I just think, you know, are we really any, much different than this guy? I mean, don't we all have, the, have pools we're trying to get into? We all have the things that we think, if I just had that, I would be well. We all have those. Like, okay, he, he, he seeks you out, it, out in your mess, and, and you miss him. But I would do the very same thing. I would, I would point to my pool, and I would say, hey, Jesus, as long as these people are pleased with my communication and the ability to connect one point to another, yeah, then I'll be well. So if you can just get me there, then I'll be good. And for all of us, it's different things. It may be experiences or accomplishments. It may be uh, a raise or a promotion at work. It may be sex or a particular relationship. It may be any of these things. And we're trusting that if we have that, I won't feel this way anymore. It will take it away. It's your pool. What, what pool are you trying to get into? What's, what's not working for you? You know, I don't know all of your stories. I know some of them, but so by not knowing all of your stories, I, I don't know what's ailing you. But what I do know is Jesus is not asking you what your pool can do for you. Do you want to be healed, Jesus asked this man. And the man says, I'm never first in the pool. See, the reason he's just lying there is because he has no one else to help him down into the, in, in, into the healing pool at exactly the right time when the water is stirred. Uh, uh, and it, because it's apparently at that point that, you, that when you're put in that you will be healed. You see, not only does this man have a long-term uh, disability, but even though he lies right next to the apparent medicine, he has no one to actually take him down further down the steps to receive it. In other words, this man is not just disabled physically, but he also is relationally alone. He's alone and friendless. But this is what Jesus says to him, verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. I mean, Jesus doesn't use this moment to be like a teachable moment in his life. He doesn't disagree with him. He doesn't talk to him about the, 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 the foolishness of the myth. He says, hey, just get up, take your bed, and walk home. And at that moment, the man's legs, legs strengthened, legs that had not been able to stand for 38 years, and he stands up, he rolls up his bed, and he walks away. Now, this is such an encouraging end to... Um, this week's episode, right? This is, this is obviously the end of the story. Like, this is the part where, in the show where, where you're expecting the credits to roll. You're like, okay, what, what, what's happening next week? Because, because this is a, a fantastic end to the episode. But no, the show keeps going. It's like, wait, what's, what's going on? Well, this was the high point of the story, but, well, not quite. It's, uh, it continues. And look what happens in the second half of verse 9. It says, now, that day was the Sabbath, 
So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, well, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who'd been healed didn't know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the the place. So this man who after 38 years of sitting beside this, this pool, Jesus miraculously heals and frees him from this burden. And the religious leaders, they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, of breaking their traditions. So, so this is this amazing miracle that Jesus did of healing someone who had been disabled for 38 years. It was done on a day when no one should be doing anything. So they don't rejoice that he's healed. They don't rejoice that the burden is lifted. And, and, and so the Jews see this guy walking with his mat, something that he hadn't done for 38 years, and they're like, you're breaking the law by doing that. And the man says, well, the man who healed me told me to. And the religious leaders are saying, okay, but the law, you're breaking the law. Who told you to break the law? They were more focused on that than the fact that the man had been healed. I mean, isn't it ironic that these men who claim to uphold the religious tradition of the, of, of the time, these men who claim that God is merciful, that, he, that he's gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that these are the very men who bring down the hammer of the law. I mean, these religious leaders knew the Old Testament better than anyone, and, and there was a prophecy in the book of Isaiah about what would happen, or, you know, what signs it would be the signs that the Messiah was here. It's in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. And it says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap for, like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I mean, how did they not see this? How did they overlook the fact that this man had been healed? They didn't see it because they, they were spiritually blind. They were more focused on the law than loving people. But then Jesus has then a second interaction with this guy in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So Jesus, he seeks him out again and he, and he calls him to remember that his healing demands a response. That when the, the, the grace of God is extended out, it demands a response and, and it ought to compel belief. It ought to compel a whole person trust in who Jesus is. That's the priority. And so Jesus seeks him out and he, and he presses it into the reality of, of, of what the pressing matter is. Namely, that physical healing is not the, the final and ultimate answer for this guy. Jesus knew that, that he had been hoping for and seeking what the, that the pool would somehow possibly be the answer. But he also knew that healing would not be the main thing that this man needed. In other words, Jesus looks beyond the physical condition and he calls him to do business with his heart, to do business with his sin. See, this man had been ill for 38 years. I mean, that's a bad hand that he has been dealt. I mean, that is not a great life. I mean, what could be worse 
than, than, than that experience. But what Jesus is saying, what's worse than that is spending eternal life not knowing Jesus. Living our lives, yeah, healthy and whole, but free of a relationship with him, free of his goodness and his grace to us. The final judgment for those who do not believe in Jesus will be worse than what this man lived through. And that's why Jesus goes and he seeks him out again. What he he does is he doesn't just leave him with his physical illness being healed as the the cap of the, the best thing that happened to him. No, he wanted to heal his soul. He invites this man to believe in who he is. I'm not just a healer. I'm a savior, and that's who I am. So we have two very different people. We we have a a royal ruler from Capernaum, and we have a disabled man in Jerusalem, and both of them have life-changing interactions with Jesus. But what do we see about the, the main character here? What do these encounters show us about Jesus? Well, you know, the first thing we see again, is, is, is his, his compassion. We see how compassionate he is. I mean, the ruler finds him and just asks him, will you heal my son? And Jesus doesn't ask him to believe him. He doesn't give him uh, you know, anything he has to do. He simply has compassion for him. He says, go, your son will live. And then we see Jesus seek out a disabled man out, of, you know, out in the temple after he had healed him to plead for his soul, go and sin no more. Give your life to me. That's the one thing we see. We see the compassion of Jesus on display, but we also see, I think secondly, his full power and deity on display. You know, people will often say that Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible. You know, point to me a place where Jesus says, I am God, and and then I would believe. But I mean, all through the book of John, especially in this passage, he makes a claim of deity. In John, 5, John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus said, God's my Father. That means I'm his Son. And that means I am the promised Messiah that will take away the sins of the world. And the religious leaders, the Jews, hated him for saying that. That was blasphemy. You did not say that. Yet that's eventually what Jesus would do. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never broke a Jewish law, meaning he never broke the Sabbath. But he was arrested and he was beaten and he was crucified for the sins of the world. But three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he was God, showing that he had victory over sin. And faith in that truth, faith in what Jesus has done for us, that is what saves us. That is what allows us to have a relationship with God. It it was Jesus' compassion that led him to the cross, and it was his deity that rose him from the dead. That is who Jesus is. And that's what we see in these two encounters. But what about us? What what does this passage show us about ourselves? Well, the one thing that I saw in these two men that rings true with me is, you know, we all have remedies that we think will heal our brokenness. 
For uh, the ruler in Capernaum, Jesus was probably not the first place that he went. You know, he, he, he probably went to, to local temples and had people... Um, sacrifice for him and he went to local doctors and local leaders and just said, hey, anything that would make my son better. And for that disabled man, it was get in the pool first or be like this forever. That's what they thought. Both men, both of these men, though, met Jesus and everything changed. So, so what's your remedy? What do you, where do you go when you feel powerless? You know, some of us this morning, maybe we haven't really thought all that much about Jesus or all that deeply about Jesus. It's, yeah, we, we, we may come, but it, he isn't really a big part um, of our life. And if that's you, my hope is that you will really seriously look at Jesus. Look at the compelling, true story of who he is and what he has done. He went to the cross with people like you in mind, with all, in mind, with all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our brokenness. He sees all of that and he says, yeah, I know that, but I want you anyway. That's why I did it. I want to be in relationship with you. And others of us, we maybe can't remember a time where we haven't believed in Jesus. You know, it, 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 it's been a big part of our, our life for a long, long time, but perhaps you have still some great area of sadness in your life. I mean, it could be a sick child or a sick spouse or a broken relationship. And you know what? This side of glory, not every sickness is healed, but every sickness can be transformed into something purposeful, meaningful, a place of significance through the work of Christ and from the perspective of God's sovereignty. As the Apostle Paul says, God interweaves all things for his glory and for our good. And this at times is supremely hard for us to believe. Which is why in prayer, we need to go to God and meet with him. Like, like these men. We need to put ourselves in a place where we can be reminded of his power and his compassion. Put ourselves in a place where, where Christ can encourage us and give, us, give fresh perspective to us and, 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 and meet us in our hour of need. And regardless of who you are this morning, Jesus has been and is now and will always be the only source of everlasting life for you. You can look for it in other pools. You can try to be first. You can step over people to get there, but it is not satisfying. It's only Jesus. The ruler saw that and it led to the salvation, not only for himself, but his whole family. The man in Jerusalem wasn't only physically healed, but Jesus sought him out and said, do you want to be made well? And my hope is, is that we continue to walk through uh, the gospel of John. What we will see is we will continue to consider this Jesus and, and, and consider seriously the offer of life that is found only in him. Let's pray together. Father, as we um, read your word and, and see Jesus on these pages, it's, it's, it's so stunning just to see what he does for people. He, he doesn't leave people where they're at after this miracle happens, but he invites them into who he is in relationship with him. God, I pray as we, we think about our lives and we think about these pools that we're trying to step into, that that we're trying to be first into, that you would show us that that's not 
ultimate fulfillment. That, that, that's not what we need. They may, they may satisfy for a little while, God, but they will not satisfy eternally. Only you can do that. And so I pray that you will help us to believe that this morning. Help us to, to trust in who you are and what you've done for us. Uh, Lord, I, I pray for this community, this community here, that as we try and figure out what it means to follow Jesus, what it is to press into our identity in Christ, that, that, that we would trust you, that we would, that we would have this whole person pr- trust that moves toward you. God, I, I think the, the most honest prayer in Scripture is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so, Lord, if that's, if that's us today, help our unbelief. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.